Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here this week, as I am always with John Mitchell. We're going to be talking this week about a recent survey that came out from Stadium, uh, reported by Brett McMurphy. Uh, talking about a large uh, contingent of FBS athletic directors who are quite interested in an expanded college football playoff. So in our first segment, we're going to be looking at the nuts and bolts of this survey, you know, what we can glean from it, what a playoff might look like after the 2025 season is over. And then in our second segment, we're going to have some fun and go back to the beginning of the BCS era and offer up an 18 playoff of our own, looking at it from a couple of special directions. So we'll give you more of the context around that once we get there to the second segment. But John, before we dive into this, how are things going in your world down there in Alabama? I know... uh, Life is crazy right now, so fill us in. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, maintaining that, I guess, status quo down here for now. It feels like in the age of coronavirus, everything stands still. I was just this week watching a replay of the Citrus Bowl from this past season, and honestly, that feels like it was five years ago at this point when I was thinking about it. I was watching that game like, that was only... Three months ago at this point, it literally feels like it was years ago because time is just standing at a standstill right now. I'm like watching gray hairs pop in one by one as they come. It's pretty amazing. It feels like it's just, uh, yeah, like you said, time is compacted and expanded and it's so long right now. And looking back, yeah, it feels like those games were decades ago so wild and you know and it makes you wonder what it's going to be like when we come out the other side and you know it, it, as much as it's crazy right now we will eventually come out the other side we have to remember that and when we come out the other side it might look radically different you know uh i mentioned this recent uh poll that came out, this recent survey by Stadium that they sent to all FBS athletic directors, and they ended up getting 112 out of the 130 to respond back. So only 18 didn't offer their their take on this. You've got a large, you know, body of data here. And what we find overwhelmingly is that these athletic directors in one form or another want the playoff field to expand. And I think that's really telling for where we're going to be headed in the future, John. Um, you know, they said that 88% of them wanted it to expand in one form or another, um, uh, either to six teams, eight teams, or even 16 teams. Uh, but, only 12% wanted to stay at four teams. And I think, you know, with that groundswell that's coming up, do you think there's 
any way that this status quo stays after 2025. No, it it feels like a, a countdown at this point to when the playoff expands. And 18's always felt like the the natural progression of the playoff. Um, I don't know if I ever see it going further than that, but, you know, thinking about an 18-playoff, if you look back 10 years ago, sounded like such a foreign concept. Uh, and now we're looking at five years from now, that likely being the world we live in as college football fans. And, you know, it makes sense that athletic directors would be in favor of it because if they do the playoff, the 18 playoff, the way that it would likely be set up, you know, you'd have the five Power Five conference champions, an automatic qualifier from the group of five, and the two at Marta's. That means every Power Five conference is represented. You don't want to have to worry about there being a controversy of a Power Five champion missing out on the college football playoff, they would all get the opportunity to play for a national championship. That drives revenue for the conferences, obviously, because there'll be incentives and whatever they do in terms of revenue sharing for that. So I think 18s is is the way to go, and it, it seems like that's the way we're headed, and I think that'll be really good for the sport. I mean, plenty of writers over the years have put together what 18 playoffs would have looked like in every season of the BCS era, for instance, that we're going to be talking about later from 1998 and on all the way until till now. And every year it looked awesome. You know what I mean? Like yeah. every single year. I was like, yeah, I would watch every one of those games. That seems great. Yeah, I know I've written enough of those columns over the years. It, 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 it's one of those inevitable you know, tropes that we keep coming back to as writers, as followers of the sport, fans are stoked about it. You know, the idea of seeing your team be able to bust through two or three games in a bracket and, you know, make a real run for it is a huge incentive. And, I, you know, I, I, I think seeing this much support from athletic directors really shows that it's going to happen. And I think you're right as well that we're going to see it sort of develop along these lines where conference championships, be, you know, they retain their significance in the form of it being a play-in into this playoff. Um, and I think also, you know, we're going to see a group of five team in that. We're going to see that stipulated and built into the system. If for no other reason, then they don't want to go back to Congress. You know, this happened after the 2004 season. And, you know, when Utah busted into the BCS the first time, there were still a lot of question marks around, is this, you know, too exclusive? Do you have to basically run the whole, you know, Gamut just to, you, you know, how many hurdles do you have to jump over to get in as a non-AQ team back in the BCS days? And if you don't put in that kind of qualifier here now, when you expand to eight, you're going to be going back to Congress on those those antitrust questions and, you know, cartelization of freezing out these teams. And if you're going to call it 1A football... And you're going to pay these schools to be your cupcakes throughout the season to warm up before, you know, football really gets going in the early, you know, weeks of the year or before you play big teams in the middle of the season. You have to also throw them a bone in that regard as well. So 
I think you're right that we're going to see it stipulated that way. And I, I, you know, I can't see what the, what's wrong in that. You know, you still have fewer than 10% of the teams across the FBS included in this playoff. It's still more exclusive than March Madness, still more exclusive than any pro league in the United States in terms of their playoff structure. So I I don't see any devaluing here. Um, You know, I, I guess I'll throw this one to you. What is the biggest argument you could see against this? I, you know, player safety obviously would be the, the one that's going to be brought up with the thought of extending the season to a potential 16th game, particularly when you're talking about these athletes still not getting compensated for it. But obviously, in a perfect world, they would get compensated for it in some form or fashion uh, when we moved in uh, to, a, to an A-team playoff. But I think that's the big one. But, I mean, you can easily mitigate that by probably just dropping one non-conference game across the board right like you go to a you go back to the days where it's everyone plays 11 games 11 game schedules eight or nine game conference schedules two or three non-conference games and that's it and that knocks you down to a even if you won the national title won a conference championship and won the three playoff games it would take to win the championship you're still only playing 15 games at that point so that would be the easiest way to avoid going to a 16th game because I think 16th I mean that's you know currently how many are playing the NFL for the regular season and those athletes are being paid millions of dollars to do that so I think 15's probably in my mind the sweet spot so my recommendation for anybody who cares would be to probably cut one non-conference game across the board and then go to you know championship weekend and then the, the playoff and have a 15 game maximum I, I, I think that's fair. I think really the only question you have to ask there is, do you allow for there to be a continued be- imbalance between eight-game and nine-game conference schedules? Or do you, you know, do you mandate that all conferences either only play eight or play nine, and then you have two or three? You know, the one question is normalization across the board. And given conference variation you know, just regional cultural variations. That's going to be the interesting thing that I think, you know, you're going to continue to see that be a sticking point along the way. At the same time, though, what that's a sticking point for is seeding rather than actually getting in because you you have a pathway for each of those conferences, whatever they decide to do. Um, it's really just going to come down to how do you perceive relative strength in the seating. And frankly, that's a lot more equitable when you get down to it. If, if we're quibbling about a four versus a five versus a six, that's a lot different than, you know, quibbling about a four versus a five versus a six right now. Right. No, I think you could leave it up to the conferences when it came to eight or nine game schedules. I think, it probably makes sense for every conference to play a nine-game conference schedule at this point, uh, with the especially with the size of conferences. Like when you're talking about it from the SEC standpoint, you have, you know, so many years now between games between certain schools because of the eight-game schedule and because of the uh, cross-division uh, set rivals. Like Alabama plays Tennessee every year, LSU plays Florida every year. So rarely do you see Alabama play 
Georgia or Florida during the regular season. They're on the rotation right now, and I, I, I think it'll be another five or six years before Alabama goes to Athens to play Georgia, and they haven't played them in Athens since 2015. So, I mean, you're talking about the games that regional fans of the area love to see anyway. You know, everybody wants to see Alabama play Georgia or Alabama play Florida, just for instance. And it's the same in other conferences like that. So nine games probably makes sense. I would say you leave it up to the conferences, though, just because you're still getting every conference champion that's going to be represented. You can quibble about the at-large teams and who's worthy. Well, this team played a nine-game schedule, this one played an eight. But, you know, when you're talking about a nine-game schedule for some as well, that ninth game could be against a team like Rutgers anyway, you know, which isn't really much of an addition to your strength of schedule because at the end of the day, everyone's strength of schedule is going to be calculated in a way, and I think that'll always be a factor when it comes to who gets those final two at-large bits. And what's interesting from that standpoint is the way it would be written, I would think, there's not a cap on there being one group of five school that gets in. Yeah. You know, the top group of five school is guaranteed a spot, but there could be a year that there's two group of five schools in the top eight. We've seen that uh, several times in the past, so there could be a second group of five team every now and then, so they don't have the the ceiling that they only get one. They could potentially get two in certain years, depending on what happens. But I think giving them one, giving them the incentive to get there is great. And I, that'll be the big, I think, controversy two year in, year out, though, is which group of five team gets it. You know, right now it's which group of five school gets, you know, an at-large bid to the New York, New York Six right now, right? Which one of them gets that? That's a big deal, obviously. Not nearly as big of a deal as which team gets to play for a national championship. So I don't know how, you know, that'll be the more difficult thing because you go across conferences and, and all that, how that ends up getting decided. You know, several times recently we've had years where it was obvious when we had undefeated Central Florida team two years in a row, and it was obvious they would have been the team that deserved that. But there's other years where, you know, it's more up in the air on which team um, is deserving. This past year, there were several teams who I think had quality arguments about potentially garnering that bid. Certainly. And, and as you said, we've seen it in the past as well. You know, 2009, 2010, both of those years you had beat you know, Boise State and TCU teams that were both right there within the top 10 that had legitimate claims. And so, yeah, it becomes a real, you know, it becomes both an opportunity and something of a mess. So I got two more questions I'd love to ask you before we go to break. First of all, um, since, you know, I'll come to this question first since you, you know, you kind of went along the same vein. Do you think that we should continue picking the teams for this system with a group of selectors that sit in a room and end up deciding their criteria together, you know, behind closed doors? Or should we reinstill some sort of composite system where we're including human calculations, you know, some kind of computer calculation, a BCS system, basically, some kind of you know, composite amalgamated algorithm that's that's helping determine, you know, and, and creating some sort of more equitable way of determining these things that takes some of the biases out of the equation. I think it should be a bit of both, to be honest with you, because 
I think there's faults in both systems, or sometimes faults, or there's sometimes issues with the computer rankings. Like for instance, <laughs> you and I both follow Bill Connolly, and we are big proponents of his SP Plus rankings. But if we were just going based off of that system, then Alabama would have made the College Football Playoff last season. So, you know, obviously it's a two-loss team. So there are some kind of, sometimes some issues when it comes to that kind of stuff. Uh, but I definitely, you know, we've both talked at length on here about the issues with the, you know, with the college football playoff committee. They're not ever really being set criteria. And then, like you said, meeting behind closed doors and making the decision. I think for the most part, though, they've got a lot of these playoffs correct in what they've chosen. Um, and it'll be a lot It'll be a lot less um, subjective when it comes to five spots every year in the same team playoff are guaranteed. Uh, you don't, there's no arguing these are five spots. The only argument is who gets seated where, who plays who, and who plays who where. And then you come down to the three spots, the two at large and the one group of five champion who gets that bid. But I think the best way is a mix. People crapped on the BCS for a lot of years, but I think the BCS was actually a good system, maybe a tweak here or there. And you could come up with a with an even better uh, computer system with that mixed in with the human element plus the computer rankings. I think would ultimately be the best way to decide it. See, I love the computers. Maybe I'm just a you know I'm a nerd who was an early adopter because my dad was an IT guy for years at the resort where I grew up and always had a computer in the house. Always had some way to tinker with spreadsheets. So. I like numbers for what it's worth, even though I'm a historian now. I look at historical numbers. Hooray. And, you know, I think about things like the Massey composite ratings, where he's looking at, oh, geez, it's dozens of computer rankings. I think it's something like 60, 70 different, oh, geez, let me, let me count this up now. We're going to take a quick second. 10, 20, 30, 40. 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 103 computers are compiled here. You know, once you're able to compile that many different systems, crunching numbers, however they decide, you can flatten out a lot of biases that are found in one computer. You know, there have been studies throughout the early 2000s looking at statistical biases in computers. You look at you know, Andrew Nutting and others who have looked at this. And it's one of those things where the more computers you have, the better it is because you can, you know, you can get rid of that deviation along the way and really account for it. So you look at a team like Oklahoma last year, across the board, they were the 10th best team in the country, according to computers. You know, it, it's one of those things where you plug that into the system, it would impact where a team is seated, but I think it would impact it in a way that's, you know, more valuable for really determining where they go, because they'd obviously still get in as the the Big 12 champion, but, you know, it, it, it can really help sort of temper some of the gleam that is on certain teams, it, and it can also amplify some, uh, uh, you know, on those truly transcendent squads because LSU was pretty much number ones across the board. The lowest computer ranking they had was number four. And you only see that in one out of 103 computers. And I think there's only one 
three rank or no, there's two three rankings, one number four, and then it's all ones and twos across the board. So, you know, you get a very clear idea of where a team stands in that regard. So I like computers. I'm I I I I figured you might you know be somewhat receptive to that, and I I think it's something that as compu- you know as fans become more familiar with computers, this is something where you propose it in 1998. It's a lot more alien to a lot of people. You know, you're gonna throw computers in and have them decide who gets to play for the national championship. There's a lot of skepticism there in 1998, you know, in the lead up to Y2K in a way there isn't in 2020. People understand as you add, you know, we've gone through the sabermetrics revolution. We've gone through these advanced analytics sort of taking over sports in a lot of ways. So computers are a fairly natural thing now. And I think you can sell it in a way that's a lot healthier and would make the system even better. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, because I was about to say the sabermetrics evolution or revolution in baseball, basketball analytics, especially nowadays in the NBA, especially where, you know, the mid-range shot is no longer considered an efficient shot in the NBA. It used to be one of the favorite shots of some of the greatest players of all time, like Michael Jordan perfected it and everybody wanted to shoot it. And now if you're not shooting a layup or a three-pointer, then you're on the bench basically at this point being criticized for it. So uh, not to segue too much into the, to the NBA, but, you know, I think you're right when it comes to people being more open to that kind of stuff nowadays. But I mean, it wasn't that long ago that people were griping hardcore about the BCS, you know, 20, 2013 was the final year of the BCS era. And I remember a lot, a lot of complaints about it, but I, I think those complaints are wrong though. I think there's probably a better way of, tweaking the computer system to get it to where it would be uh, more fair across the board. But I do think there needs to be something more in that than just, you know, a dozen people sitting behind closed doors deciding, hey, this these are the best teams in the country this year. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, too, is I think by the end of the Bowl Championship Series era, they're at the end of the 2013 season, the gripes weren't necessarily about what the computers did to the, you know, what the computers did to this. It was really about, you know, sort of groupthink that happened around the human polls and the amplification that happened with early season high rankings and the ability to overcome a loss if you're ranked higher earlier. And, um, you know, computers kind of pardon my language, but they see through a lot of that bullshit in a way that our human eyes can't always do. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, as humans became more familiar with the way computers think and the way they're looking at this and the way it's very dispassionate when it comes to a very passion-inducing sport, it, people like cutting through that bullshit. And... You know, as much as we love debating good, bad, ugly, in the end, it really comes down to we want eight great teams. And winning a conference championship, most people seem to think, should mean something, you know, especially in a Power 5 conference. And 
if you're winning a group of five conference, you, your name should be in the hat. You know, whether or not you actually make it in in the end, if you're a four-loss MAC team, you're probably not getting in. If you're, I, I hate to say it, but even if you're a one-loss Appalachian State team, you're probably not getting in. Unless that loss is a very close, like, one-point loss to a South Carolina team that ends up with ten wins by the end of the year. Versus losing to a Georgia Southern team that struggles to reach bowl eligibility. Those things are natural. I mean, we saw it in 2012 with Northern Illinois. They were able to circumvent an 18-17 loss to Iowa at the beginning of the season. And this wasn't even a really great Iowa team. But they were able to circumvent that, run the table for 12 in a row, win the MAC, and go to the Orange Bowl. You know, that was Jordan Lynch's finest hour was getting them there and getting to the Heisman ceremony. And then, you know, he kind of had Cinderella's carriage turning into a pumpkin there in Miami. But that's a different story. You know, he got the chance. And I think that's one of those things where people are realistic about it. Enough about the group of five, though, because you know me, I could chat about this forever. I, I love the, these sorts of storylines. I'm working on a damn book about it right now. So yeah, we'll, we'll move on to my final question. Most of the coaches involved here seem to think that we should be uh, playing quarterfinal games on campuses. And... How would you like to actually know a small majority of athletic directors think that we should be playing these games on campus? It's 53 to 47 out of 112 respondents. And so, you know, more power five directors think that they should be played on campus. Fewer group of five directors seem to think that. How would you like to see playoffs structured in terms of where they're played, John? I kind of dig the thought of the quarterfinals being played at the higher-seeded team's campus. Like, that would be, imagine a college football playoff game on the campus of Penn State, for instance. Like, imagine the raucous crowd. Like, that would be the, one of the better environments in the history of the game when you get to see a, a championship-level event on a campus. It also, I think, gives incentive to the higher-seeded teams. So there's incentives. You know, that's what a lot of people think is that the regular season gets de-incentivized, right? That, you know, going undefeated doesn't mean that much anymore because you could lose three games, pull an upset in your conference championship games, and make the playoffs. Well, yeah, that probably means you're the eighth seed, and you've got to go, you know, to Tuscaloosa to play Alabama or to Death Valley to play Clemson best of luck in that game, right? So I like the idea of the higher-seeded team getting the incentive. You've got the incentive to play hard all year to to try to get home-field advantage, and how big of a home-field advantage would that be in a playoff environment? You're going to have 90,000, 100,000 fans on your side going crazy to try to will you into one of those semifinal games that could theoretically then still take place in the normal bowl system um, that we currently have. So I kind of really like the idea because I think it really just plays up um, the opportunity to really fight for a, for a higher seed. And then I guess that leads to, 
I know I said that was my last question, but let's just think quickly. Semifinals. Do you want them in bowl games? Or would you like to see even those on campuses and only have a championship game on a neutral site? I think I like the, the bowl games the way they are right now for the semifinals because then you're getting to the more compactness of the playoff, right? It's kind of like the Final Four, for instance, getting in the getting to the Final Four. Like maybe you even have one spot for the semifinals. Maybe the semifinals are played in Dallas or Miami or L.A. or something like that, and then the championship games also played there. You could structure it that way. You could structure it in the current bowl system. But I don't know about – I think I'd rather have those at neutral sites over playing them on campus when you get down to the top four teams in the country playing each other. Fair enough. You know, I I kind of waver between the two because I love the atmosphere of college stadiums. It, it, it's just one of those things that's part of the sport, and, you know, getting a high seed seems like something where the more advantage you can have, the better, and the less your fan base has to pay to go see you, the better. You know, one of those things where you could give the advantage to fans as well. But, you know, I understand the argument, and I love bowl games, so I get it. I, you know, I would, I, if we can have eight teams in a playoff, I, I sure as hell won't argue beyond that at this point. Especially where we're sitting right now, where we would love any live sports. So, on that note, folks, now that we just put you in a depressing mood, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be thinking about a little bit of college football history, digging into those greats from the BCS era onward. So grab yourself uh, your beverage of choice while we're away for this minute, and we'll be right back. Welcome back from the break, everybody, to the Saturday Boys podcast. We've been talking about Stadium's recent survey of college football athletic directors and how they'd like to see the playoffs structured once the four-team college football playoffs contract runs out after the 2025 season. In the spirit of their answer, which is overwhelmingly in favor of 18 playoffs, we have decided to look back to the beginning of the BCS era and pick out our top eight bracket. Now, there were a couple of stipulations here that we each had to work with. First of all, we had to choose a, the, the best conference champion from each of the five current Power Five champ, you know, conferences. That meant the Big East was not included in this, despite being a big part of the BCS era. Uh, so their teams were available for at-large selections. Uh, we also included one group of five champion because as we talked about in the last segment, uh, there's overwhelming support for including a guaranteed access point for the top group of five champ. So we added that into the mix. And then, as I mentioned, we have two at-large selections. Now, part of this as well is that you had to, you know, we went with teams in their specific year, you know, that specific vintage of team. And it, it, it was the team as they were in that conference at that time. So, you know, a 2001 Miami team is in the Big East, whereas a 20, you know, 11 
Miami team or a, or rather a 2014 Miami team, whatever, is in the ACC. Not that you'd want to pick either of those, mind you, but, you know, you get the gist of this, where they sit. 2004 Utah is in the pack or is in the Mountain West. 2019 Utah is in the Pac-12. That sort of thing, yada yada yada. I think it generally clicks for you all. You're all smart, intelligent, brilliant minds out there. We love having listen every week, so I'm pretty sure this should be pretty clear. So we got to pick five conference champions, a group of five champions, two at-large teams, seed them, throw them into a bracket. How would you like to talk about this, John? Let's say let's go let's go conference by conference, maybe Zach. I think that's at fair. large, and at the end we can say how we had them seated. I think that's fair. So let's start with group of five champions because you know I think that's the one that everybody's really going to be most curious about where they land in the picture. You know, there've been a couple of really incredible ones over the years. We've had UCF, we've had Boise State. Uh, you know, we've had Horn Frogs teams, youth teams. Hell, you can go back to Tulane and Marshall at the very beginning and those squads that they had that went undefeated. So, out of that whole mix of, of incredible opportunities for those squads, which one would you throw into this ultimate eight-team playoff? You know, my favorite group of five team that I've ever watched was 2010 TCU. So without worrying about analytics or anything like that, we talked about doing this. That was going to be the team I chose for the group of five right away. Because I still maintain to this day that I think that 2010 TCU team was the best team in college football. They deserved a shot. to, And if there was a four-team playoff then, they would have made it. They finished number two in the polls behind Auburn that season. I think they would have given Auburn a really great game, I think. In my opinion, they probably would have even beat Auburn, I think, and that's, you know, trying not to be biased there. We talked about it 10 years ago, Zach. I thought that TCU team was the best team in college football. Um, Nothing in the decade that's come since has changed my opinion on that. That Horn Frogs team was great. I mean, they went 13-0. They only had one game during the regular season that was played within one possession they obviously won the Rose Bowl over Wisconsin. And this is a team that had a ton of talent. You don't talk about just, you know, the random upstart underdogs. Andy Dalton was the quarterback of this team before going on to having, you know, as much as he's derided by fans at this point in the stage of his career in Cincinnati, he had a heck of a run with the Bengals as their starting quarterback, uh, teaming with A.J. Green and making the playoffs several times. Um, you know, they had Jeremy Curley at wide receiver. They had defense. Defensive guys like Tanner Brock and Tank Carter, who were just all over the place. That Horn Frogs defense was outstanding. And that's the thing. Like, that was the highlight of the team was how good they were defensively, despite the fact that Andy Talton was the quarterback of the team, was one of the best quarterbacks in college football. So that's who I went with uh, for my group of five pick. I, I really love that 2010 Horn Frogs team that went over Wisconsin, the Rose Bowl. It uh, was really a, a fantastic football game, and I would have loved to have seen TCU have a shot that season of playing for a title. 
I agree. That TCU team was amazing. And, you know, I think about how Auburn fared against Oregon that year, the 22-19 championship game. And if there was a, a plus one there, you know, TCU entered the uh, the postseason that year. I think number four, they might have been ahead of Cincinnati. I can't quite remember. Um, however it finished, though, they were right there in the thick of... they. I think they were number three, actually, because they were number four the year before. Anyway, they come in that, that tight. They, you know, we saw Oregon did not have a defense anywhere near the Horn Frogs defense. And they could have very, very easily had a real chance at, at stealing that. You know, they were allowing 12 points a game. Uh, Oregon was allowing 18 and change, 18.7. So they could have, they could have, tamp down Cam Newton and company in a way that the Ducks just could not. So I agree with you. They're a hell of a team. Personally, though, like I said, I'm in the last segment. I like analytics. I'm an analytics guy. So when I crunch all the numbers accounting for, you know, strength of schedule and margins of victory and how well they did over the course of the year, I've got to go with that original BCS buster. Utah in 2004 was absolutely ridiculous. You know, they had Alex Smith at the helm. This was Urban Meyer's last team. Kyle Whittingham was there as the defensive coordinator. And this was, you know, a team that just stomped through its schedule. This was a team that also got to play three... uh, you know, at the time we considered them automatic qualifying conferences or the Power Six, however you wanted to look at it. But they played Texas A&M, Arizona, and North Carolina throughout the course of the season. They beat all three by double-digit margins. You know, they beat Texas A&M by 20. They beat Arizona by 17 on the road. They beat North Carolina at home by 30. Um, and just one romp after another. And then, you know, they obviously crushed Pittsburgh 35-7 in the Fiesta Bowl. So this is a team that just up and down was ridiculous in a way that few other BCS teams or, you know, BCS busters or group of five teams getting into the New Year's Six ever have been. Uh, simply because of the level of competition they played. And, you know, in terms of, you know, the way sports reference looks at this, for that Utah team among, you know, group of five squads, this was, bar none, the only one that played a plus strength of schedule. So I don't know if you know out there how sports references strength of schedule rankings work, but you know, you basically have a null strength of schedule at zero. You know, this is the 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 median you know schedule that you could play. And most of the time for group of five schools, for non-AQ schools, you'd see that as a negative number because they're playing a weaker schedule than, um, than that mean, than that, that average. And 
Utah is the only one out of the non-AQing group of five teams since 1998 who have finished undefeated or with only one loss who finished with a plus strength of schedule. So just on that regard, the, you know, the fact that they did what they did, scoring 45 points a game, allowing fewer than 20 against just a ridiculous, you know, pathway to get to where they got um, and did it in an era where you still had to finish top six in the BCS rankings rather than top 12, uh, I couldn't pass them up for that spot. So Urban Meyer, hopefully you stayed around in Salt Lake City to, to coach in this playoff because I imagine he would have stuck around before going to Florida if he had this kind of opportunity on the table. Yeah, I mean, that 04 Utah team was great. Uh, them and the 2008 Utah team were both teams that certainly came to mind when I was thinking about this. Oh, yeah. And, you know, like I said, obviously that 2017 UCF team is up there. Uh, Boise State in 2010, 2009, 2006. All of them were ridiculous teams. I even, you know, considered a team like Louisville in 04 who went 11-1 and and, you know, scored almost 50 points a game, allowed, you know, their defense was just as good as Utah's that year, but they played a weaker schedule, which is why they missed out on the BCS. So there are a lot of, there have been a lot of teams over the years that could probably give a run for a money in a, you know, single elimination tournament like this, for sure. But enough about the group of five. Like I said in the last segment, I could yammer about this for days. Let's move on to these Power 5 conferences, John. Uh, let's just run down the line. Who would you put in for your Big Ten champion? Uh, the Big Ten was, a, was kind of tough, to be honest, because when you look at a lot of the other conferences, you have dominant national championship teams to kind of pick from. There weren't a ton of great options for, for the Big Ten in the BCS era, at least in my mind. I mean, you obviously have some national championship teams um, in the mix, but um, the team that I went with actually didn't win a national title. Is the only team um, other than, obviously, TCU on my list that didn't win a national championship, and that was the 2015 Ohio State Buckeyes, uh, a year removed from winning the national title. Uh, if you look at it, from a, from an analytics perspective, too, this 2015 Ohio State team was actually better across the board than their 2014 counterparts. Um, Connolly's SP Plus had 2015 Ohio State as the best team in college football that year over national champion Alabama, despite the fact that the Buckeyes didn't even make the playoff in 2015. They lost that late game to, to Michigan State on a game-winning field goal by the Spartans where the Buckeyes just had nothing going right in that game. I think they only mustered like 130 yards of offense somehow. So credit to Mark D'Antonio's defense for shutting down just the ridiculously talented Buckeye squad that obviously had Cornell Jones and JT Barrett quarterback, Zeke Elliott at running back, Michael Thomas at wide receiver, and the defense that featured Joey Bosa, Darren Lee, Von Bell, Eli Apple, Marshawn Lattimore. I mean, just a who's who of professional football players right now on that Ohio State Buckeyes squad. So 
Um, I included them uh, as my best team from uh, this era of the Big Ten, in my opinion. I, I think that Buckeye squad, they are, uh, not to spoil my list at the end, but they're my eight seed, so they're the very last team in officially. But to me, that's the best Big Ten team of the playoff era, and I think they, um, you know, deserved a shot at, at getting a shot. If it would have been an eight-team playoff, they obviously would have made it in 2015. That's fascinating because that is the fifth best Big Ten team on my list. So, you know, we have some, some disagreement. I, I, it, it's hard to go against the Buckeyes, though. And I actually had another team that didn't win a national championship in Columbus. You know, they had several over the BCS era. Or, you know, they had one in the BCS era and then one at the beginning of the college football playoff era. But I honestly thought last year's Ohio State team, the 2019 vintage, was the best of the bunch. They scored points in droves. This was one of their best defensive efforts of the entire period. Um, you know, fit right in line with some of their other championship vintages. But, you know, they played a tough strength of schedule. They, you know, they, they had a high margin of victory. And... They came damn close to bringing down Clemson. You know, they almost felled the defending champions there. And, you know, you've got to think with the... Obviously, Buckeyes fans out there, probably still some of them feel, you know, the conspiracy theories swirling around. And I'm not going to go into that. Officiating is officiating. You know, things go each team's way over the course of a game. Most of the time, it balances out. You can nitpick all day long. But ultimately, Ohio State was Clemson's equal last year, pretty much. And it came down to just, you know, the the, the toss of the dice. And I, I, I don't think in that regard that they needed to be discounted from this. So I throw them into the bracket as the best Big Ten champion of this period. Yeah, I mean, that's that's totally fair. Um had they beaten Clemson, they probably would have been my pick. And they don't have any, you know, Hot State fans can definitely gripe about a couple of calls, uh, just as every fan base can gripe about calls in every game. But Ohio State blew that game. They had every opportunity to win that game. They didn't make the plays they needed to make to win. Uh, I think that I said all year that them and LSU were the two best teams in college football. So I would have loved to have seen them get the opportunity to play one another. I think that would have made for an epic college football national championship game, for sure. Definitely. Let's shift to another conference here, John. Let's go to your your neck of the woods. How about the SEC? I had to go... There's there's several good options, obviously. The SEC had a ton of national title teams during this era. Uh, But it's kind of hard not to go with this past year's LSU team after going... Um, 15 and 0, being the first SEC team to go 15 and 0. Um, just a dominant offensive team, especially something that is so foreign to think about even now. With as much as LSU has been offensively inept over the previous decade, until uh, Joe Brady and company got to town this past year and you know reinvented the wheel essentially for the Tigers' offense. Joe Burrow had. One of the best seasons a quarterback's ever had in college football. Set a bunch of records. Just a ridiculously loaded team. 
Uh, they beat seven teams this year who were ranked in the top ten at the time. Obviously, Joe Burrow was going to win the Heisman. Uh, Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson had ridiculous seasons. Their defense wasn't a vintage LSU defense for much of the year, but when it really, really mattered, like in the SEC championship game, in the playoff, and in the national title game, that defense made a lot of plays to help LSU seal the deal on a perfect season. So they got my they got my nod for the for the SEC pick. We have no arguments here, folks. I you know crunching the numbers. The nerd with the numbers saw the exact same thing pop out of this. This was an otherworldly offensive team. They certainly weren't the best SEC team defensively during this period. Um, in fact, the only other team that allowed more points out of the SEC among these champions was that 2010 Auburn team. So, you know... They definitely were not among the elite of the elite there, but just the way that Burrow and company were able to put points on the board against a top five SEC schedule during this period, um, you know, out of these champions that we're looking at, they they get the nod for me as well. So and it never mattered who they played. That was the thing. Like every time it was like. Okay, this is going to be the team that slows the LSU offense down. Nope, no it wasn't. We're still waiting three months later for that to happen. Yeah, exactly. And we'll be waiting for the rest of our lifetimes because that team won't be slowed down in our dreams till we die. So, move on from there, John. We've done the Big Ten. We've done the SEC. Those are always the, you know, in terms of revenue, obviously, the biggest conferences. Um, let's move on to the ACC since they've been, you know, the site of uh, quite a few recent national champions. Who would you throw in out of all those great ACC teams over the years? I think there was three true contenders for this spot. I think you had two Clemson um, title teams in 2016 and 2018. Then you had 2013 Florida State, who all had really strong cases to earn this spot. Um I ended up coming down to 2013 Florida State and 2018 Clemson, to be honest with you. Uh, and I gave a narrow edge to the 2018 Clemson team. They might not have had the resume during the regular season because ACC wasn't as strong in 2018 as it was in 2013 for the Knowles. But that 2018 Tigers team, when you look at what they did in the college football playoff especially, I think elevated their profile a lot higher than I think a lot of you know, just the bare bones numbers are gonna gonna point out because that 2018 Alabama team coming into that national championship game flipped the script and Alabama wins that. They're looked on just like this 2019 LSU team we just talked about is looked on because they had up to that point an all time historically great season, and then Clemson beat the brakes off of them in Santa Clara for the national title. And you know, after also beating a undefeated Notre Dame team, right? 30 to 3 in the in the Cotton Bowl right before that. So that Clemson team was dominant. You had a freshman Trevor Lawrence, you had a 1600 yard back in Travis Etienne, great receivers and that dominant defensive line that kind of keyed everything. Colin Farrell, Dexter Lawrence, Christian Wilkins, just a ridiculous array of talent at Dabo Sweeney's disposal. So that 2018 Tigers team got my nod as the top ACC team. 
You know, when you have defensive linemen who can celebrate by doing splits on the sideline, you know you've got a hell of a physical team. You know, just just ridiculous physical specimens. So, enjoy the gift, everybody. We're going to move on from there. I loved that team, and honestly, I'll just throw it out there right now. It's one of my two at-large teams. But I had to go with a different team that didn't hail from South Carolina. Honestly, that 2013 Florida State team, given what its offense was able to do with Jameis Winston at the helm, had to get my nod. They were the team that ended the SEC's damn unbroken string of BCS titles through the second half of the series. They were the ones who finally vanquished the beast, if you will. And, you know, they did it not just with an offense that scored more than 51 points a game, you know, and vaulted Winston to the Heisman Trophy, but they also had a defense that held opponents to fewer than two touchdowns each outing. And, you know, with that firepower on both sides of the ball, they had all the tools to compete with the best the SEC was able to produce. So, you know, they took down Auburn that year. I'm sure you were very happy they took down Auburn that year. And I think they certainly warrant inclusion in this, you know, grand playoff. So, that's my ACC pick. That's a great pick. I ended up, my biggest omission on my list, I'll go ahead and say, is the 2013 Florida State team. And really that came out of interest of us just having a little bit more variety in our list because they probably would have been a little too similar to make this as fun as it could have been. So sorry, Florida State fans, you got bumped just because of that, honestly. Yeah, it was a hell of a team. I I, I filled out my list first, everybody, and shipped it over to him. You know, we were frantically typing out trying to figure out who we put where, and I guess I, I, I won that. Um. Moving on to the Big 12. Let's go to the Big 12 next. Who do you like there, John? You know, arguably one of the greatest teams of of the era um, was the 2005 Texas Longhorns. Um, I think uh, that's going to be... I'm I'm assuming, if I remember your list correctly, you concur anyway, but um, that 2005 Texas team... You know, we looked at them, we talked about it, I think, last week or week before coming into that national title game against USC. They were looking at, you know, seven-point underdogs against what looked like the historically great Trojans team coming off a national title. And they pulled off a, a, a great win. And then you look back at how great that Texas team was, and it's a bit ridiculous that we ever would have considered them to be a touchdown underdog to anyone that season because of how great of a year they had. Obviously, Vince Young was the headliner. He had a great season, would have won the Heisman in many other years. It wasn't for Reggie Bush's brilliance. Um, at the time, they produced a record 652 points um, in the season, which was incredible at the time. 24 future NFL players were on the on that roster. Uh, Jamal Charles was in the backfield. I think he's often forgotten about from a lot of uh, a lot of fans. And then Michael Griffin, Michael Huff, Cedric Griffin um, on defense. And um, in terms of the analytic aspect to it, Jeff Segarin 
has Texas listed as the number one team from the BCS era of all time. So that 05 Longhorns team was great, um, and I think they're the best Big 12 team from the BCS era and on. We definitely concurred on that one, and I'm pretty sure we also concurred on the Pac-12 representative, which was the 2004 USC Trojans, that team right before the USC team that played Texas. Um, I really think that was Pete Carroll's best team of his tenure there in Los Angeles. It wasn't that 05 team that had two Heisman winners on it. But it was the 4 team that had two future Heisman winners on it in Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush. Um, you know, this was a team that in some ways, you know, they struggled a bit to score points at least as much as the next year's vintage did. But this was also a team that was so much more formidable on defense against what was Honestly, the toughest schedule played by any undefeated or one-loss team over the past 22 years, according to sports reference. That's not me talking, folks. That's the computers talking. So, you know, I'm sure somebody could crunch it down and they might be second or third on that list. But that was a strong schedule that they just bulldozed through en route to their second out of what looked at the time like at least three straight national championships. Um, and I think because the way that defense played um, with Sean Cody leading the unit, I, I think they would have been able to do to Vince Young what the next year's unit was not able to do and, you know, keep him under 200 yards rushing maybe. Um and, you know, at least give Liner and the rest of that offense enough space to hold on to a lead and, and claim the title here and move on in the playoffs against, you know, whoever they ended up playing against. So, Yeah, and, I mean, I remember the 04 title game when they played Oklahoma and hotshot Adrian Peterson at running back, who everyone thought would have a field day, even against a great Trojans defense, and they followed him up and won 55-19, to 19, just an absolute slaughter to cap off just a, a tremendous season in Southern California. So, yeah, that was the team I had there in the Pac-12. I'm pretty sure you ended up with the same team. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So... On that note, we have a couple of at-large selections as well. I already mentioned 2018 Clemson is one of mine. Um, the other one, and I'm pretty sure this has to be yours as well, given that we can't, you know, the Big East is not included in the Power Five these days, but that 2001 Miami Hurricanes team that was just loaded with Ed Reed, Sean Taylor, Jonathan... Jonathan Vilma, Vince Wilfork, Entrell Roll, all of these just beasts on defense. And, you know, that's not even to speak about the offense that they put on the field. But, you know, this was a Miami crew that gave up only 9.8 points per game against a biggie schedule that was still big at the time, you know, when they still, you know, before they had bled away all their teams and, and gone to Conference USA for their refill. So Miami has to be on the list for me. I'm guessing it is for you as well, John. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They're not only just on the list, they're um, 
number one on the list to me. I think this is the best um, team of the BCS era, arguably the best college football team of all time. 2001 Miami was just ridiculously loaded. You mentioned some of the defensive guys. I just wanted to mention their running back depth chart because it was absolutely ridiculous. You're looking at Clinton Portis, number one. Number two was Willis McGahee. Third was Frank Gore. And fourth was Najee Davenport. All four of those guys played in the NFL um, and had pretty successful careers in the NFL, not to mention receivers like Andre Johnson, tight ends like Kellen Winslow and Jeremy Shockey. I mean, just a ridiculous football team. Talent all over the field. Uh, that 0-1 Miami team, I think, had a had something to prove. They thought they should have, you know, won the title in 2000. I think they lost an early season game to Washington, if I remember correctly, in 2000. And that cost them what they thought should have been a national title in 2000. They came out with something to prove in 2001, and they really did so. Um, Very similar um, Miami team to that USC team we just talked about. When you talk about the Trojans winning titles in 03, 04, and then coming into 05, because, you know, Miami won um, in 01, you know, arguably could have been considered the best team in 2000 as well. And then 2002 went undefeated all the way to losing to Ohio State uh, in that Fiesta Bowl, uh, controversially, you know, not to get into that or anything either. But, yeah, I think that one Miami team is obviously one of the two at-larges. So uh, my second at-large, just to go on into that, maybe a bit of a homer pick, but I went with 2011 Alabama. That was the, to me, the best Alabama team I've seen. They lost the one game in the regular season, the uh, first of, you know, a hundred now game of the centuries we've seen since 2011, losing 9-6 to LSU. The birth of Alabama's kicking woes, which has, you know, aged me by several decades uh, over the last decade. Um, But that was an Alabama team in that game against LSU. You look at the stats, Alabama won every statistical category in that game. Had them able to make one of the four field goals they missed in regulation, they win that game, probably finish the season uh, unblemished completely. But that Alabama defense that year is what really stood out. Uh, obviously, there was talent on offense with Trent Richardson, who won the, the Dope Walker Award, A.J. McCarron, um, who was a, a sophomore quarterback just coming into his own. But the defense was just led the nation in every single statistical category. They obviously got uh, a second opportunity against LSU uh, in New Orleans and just completely dominated a really great LSU team, too. If you look at it from that, that 2011 LSU team, you know, was one win away from probably being on this list themselves. Had they won that game, they might have even had an argument over 2019 LSU as the best SEC team of the era. Um, so, yeah, I went with 2011 Alabama with due respect to the 13 uh, Florida State Seminoles and many, many others who deserved consideration. I think that's really fair. Um, You know, you mentioned some of these first teams off your list, and one that was off the list just barely for me was 08 Florida as well. That uh, Urban Meyer coach team there in Gainesville was also quite ridiculous in terms of the numbers I was crunching down. So, But let's quickly break down these brackets, Sean. I'm just going to go rapid fire at you and, you know, 
one versus eight. You had O one Miami versus twenty fifteen Ohio State. Who do you like in that game? Uh, definitely the Hurricanes. I like I said, I think they're the best team of the year. I think it's hard to compare these teams in terms of the actual games because how much college football has changed in yeah. the twenty years since that O one Miami teams played. But talent wins out in a lot of instances, and that Miami team is the most talented team in the bracket. Certainly. I'll go to your 4-5 matchup next. You have 0-4 USC versus 2011 Alabama. I went, I actually made a quick change. I swapped 5 and 6 just in interest, and that's just because I wanted the 3-6 matchup that you can probably see on your screen now. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I, I did that late. So 4-5 for me would have been 2004 USC against 2018 Clemson, which... Another just fantastic game. Um, I think that 4 USC defense probably would have been able to give a freshman Trevor Lawrence a few more looks that might have been a little confusing to him. Uh, that defensive line for Clemson, though, would have had a lot to say against Reggie Bush and Lindell White. Uh, but I think Reggie Bush's versatility and getting out of the backfield and making plays. Um, and also of interest, two left-handed quarterbacks. So you have Matt Leinert. Uh, 2018 Clemson took down Alabama's Tua Tungavailoa, the lefty, so maybe the left-handed redemption in this kind of game. But I think that 4 USC team would win a close game just because of the experience they have on the defensive side of the ball. I think that's fair. Uh, your 2-7 seed, you have 5 Texas and 2010 TCU, that nice localized duel there. Isn't that a fascinating matchup? Like, just an absolute it. fascinating matchup. I think 05 Texas wins, but I do think 2010 TCU uh, would perform well in the game. I don't think it would be a route as most people would probably project. Uh, but I don't, you know, Vince Young, it's kind of hard to go against him in these kind of matchups. I think Gary Patterson's defense would kick his ass. But, you know, there you go. Moving on to 3 6. With that late switch, you got 2019 LSU, 2011 Alabama, an all-SEC encounter here. Where do you take it? You know, I, that's the reason I made the switch. I thought it would be fascinating. If any defense would have a shot against this 2019 LSU offense, it would be that 2011 Alabama defense with just the ridiculous. I think all 11 of Alabama's defensive starters that year got drafted into the NFL. So just unbelievable amounts of talent at every single level of the defense. So I, man, I don't know. 2011 Alabama is probably my favorite Alabama team I've ever seen. So it's hard for me to go against them because I think that defense will just have so much to say. And again, LSU didn't have a great defense overall. So I think you'd see, you know, obviously different philosophy because that 2011 Alabama team wasn't an up-tempo, fast-paced offense. It was a grinded-out offense that liked to run Trent Richardson and Eddie Lacy until both guys were puking on the sidelines. So they would try to take the air out of the football and then try to, you know, shorten the game and get after Burrow. I think that 11 Alabama team would have a really good shot. So let me call one upset, and maybe it's the homer pick, but let me call the 2011 Bama defense rising to the occasion and stifling the Tigers just like they did that season in the title games. Awesome. All right. I'm going to run through mine quick now. We'll move on. Uh, 
2011 Miami is the one seed against 04 Utah as the eight seed. As much as I'm a group of five guy, as much as I love Cinderella stories, I don't think Alex Smith is the guy to break down that formidable Kings defense. Uh, you know, I any it, anything can happen in a one-off situation. Let's just own that right now. Possible, I could be an idiot for saying this. <laughs> we'll luckily never know because these are the greatest of counterfactuals. But Miami's probably going to stomp the Utes here. Let's just throw it right out there right now. Moving on, we've got in the four or five game, oh, uh, 2019 Ohio State against 2018 Clemson. You know, this is a very That's fascinating. Yeah, it's a very close matchup to what we just actually got to see last season, but an even more formidable Clemson defense in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, this Ryan Day squad was ridiculous. They had one of the five toughest schedules against any undefeated or one-loss team since 98. They still have a hell of a test against Clemson, even given that they won by an average of 33 points a game. I think, you know, like you said, they had chances against the 2019 team. I think they have fewer chances against the 2018 team, and Clemson goes on as a five seed. Next game. 2-7, Florida State in 2013 against 2019, LSU is the 7. Heisman winners, high-powered offenses. Uh, this is a hell of a quarterback duel. I wouldn't be surprised if we see, you know, I'd set the over-under somewhere in triple digits probably. Um, I could easily see this being like a 63-59 game. <laughs> um and honestly, I see LSU barely squeaking by just because they did it against a much tougher schedule to get to where they did. Which brings us to our last game, which is another fascinating game, like, you know, the Ohio State Clemson, where we see teams near one another. I mentioned, I kind of alluded to it when I was talking about this, but I think 05 Texas against 04 USC. That 05 Trojans team, that defense, backslid a bit. And I think the 2004 unit could tamp down Vince Young just enough to allow USC to squeak on. So I have 5, 6, and 7 moving on in my, my bracket. Um, but I'll just, you know, if for the interest of time, who's your champion out of the, all of this, John? It's 2001 Miami. Um, for me, I think maybe 2011 Bama in my bracket would have upset 05 Texas just because of that 11 Bama defense. But I don't think anybody, no matter how you shake out the 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 seedings, would beat that 2001 Miami team. To me, that's the greatest college football team I've ever seen and maybe ever will see in terms of a talent standpoint. Yeah, that team was ridiculous. I'm in the same boat with you. I think... You know, I had that 2013 Florida State team skirting by 04 USC to play a, a classic Miami-Florida State championship game, but Miami would kick their ass by four touchdowns, so. But I got Florida State wouldn't have to worry about any wide rights. Exactly, so there you go. There's a silver lining to this, Seminoles fans, once we get to the punchline, so. Yeah. 
I'm the only. I can make the kicking jokes on the show. I think that's fair. I have to set it all up. <laughs> it, we're playing the long game here, everybody. But on that note, you got any last words, Sean? No, nope, uh, that was a lot of fun. I appreciate you you coming up with that topic. I had a lot of fun doing some research on it and coming up with some of these teams and and thinking back to all these great teams uh, and all these great seasons of college football. That, that we've got to watch. It got me really nostalgic and, and ready for a new season whenever that actually does happen. Oh, I'm, I'm with you. I had tons of fun with this as well. And for all of you out there, feel free to tweet at us where you would put teams in your own magical 98 to present Super 8 bracket. Uh, we'd totally love to hear it. I'll totally prompt you all on Twitter at ZBagalki. Uh, copying JL Mitchell 93 on that so you can hit us both up uh, but for now stay safe out there everybody stay sane I hope you're all uh, hanging in there well as we continue to soldier on together in the age of coronavirus thanks for tuning into the Saturday Blitz podcast we'll be back with you next Wednesday <laughs>